Let's make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as we continue our journey through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And as you guys settle in and make your way to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, uh, we'll have a little uh, homage to your friends at REO Speedwagon. Uh, we'll be looking at a time for me to flee. And so some message titles tickle me more than others. That one, uh, that one might have made me laugh this week. But as you guys head that direction, we're going to see uh, that this church that the Apostle Paul has planted back in Acts chapter 18, uh, he is now receiving letters concerning the church. And so as Paul's continued on his missionary journey, he's receiving letters. He's gotten word that there are issues that have arisen inside the church in Corinth. And so I find this fascinating because many times in church you'll hear people say, uh, why can't we get back to the way things were in the uh, early church, back in those New Testament days with the apostles? And what we find as we studied through Corinthians is uh, things in church are very much like the early New Testament church as we work our way uh, through these issues. And as Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, he is writing about this philosophy that has begun to permeate into uh, their church body. And you might recall we talked about that the Greeks love philosophy. In fact, uh, the word philosophy, phileo, is love and Sophia is wisdom. They loved uh, wisdom. But the wisdom that they loved was the wisdom of men, not the wisdom of God. And what Paul said as we began our study through 1 Corinthians is that to the Greeks, to this uh, man wisdom culture, the, the wisdom of God, it sounds like foolishness. I mean, the God of the universe would give his life for his creation of all things. And so it seems like complete foolishness, but what Paul shares with them is that man's wisdom is going to pass away. But the wisdom of God, what Hebrews 13 tells us, is Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so it continues through all of history. And we see our Bible now in our hands as this collection of Holy Spirit-inspired texts that has existed for thousands upon thousands of years. And so as Paul is writing to them, trying to get them to understand the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom, he begins with the first issue in chapters 1 through 4. And the issue is one of divisiveness. That they'd actually become divided inside the church. And they were divided over the silliest of things. Who's your favorite Bible teacher? And, but what Paul's saying is you all have diverse likes and dislikes. Some of you are mango salsa people. Some of you are hot salsa people, right? You've got these diversities, and yet by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're called to be unified. And so we have unity in diversity as we come together as the body of Christ. These people from a, a Greek background or from a Jewish background are coming together unified by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they were uh, divided when they should have been united. But then as we made our way to chapter 5, and we're going to be into this again with chapter 6, we see in the area of sexual immorality, um, they were united when they should have been divided. And so the, the enemy had in fact twisted things up, which is what Satan always wants to do. He always wants to, to twist things and turn things on us. In fact, the first words that we see from Satan in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 is... Uh, did God indeed say? Did God really say that? And so he tries to twist the word of God on us and the, the culture as well. And so they were, they were mixed up at the church in Corinth. In fact, there was one gentleman who was sleeping with his stepmother. 
And that's really the issue that he addresses in chapter 5. And it was such an obvious issue that even for the Greeks, even the people in the culture that are living a lot like the modern-day Las Vegas there in Corinth, uh, they looked in on this and they're like, man, that's jacked up. I mean, this is bad even for us. But it wasn't that the church was just allowing it to take place. They were actually promoting it. They were bragging about it. They were bragging about their incredible tolerance. And so this puffed up way of bragging about it so that they could seem attractive. What Paul says is, in the meantime, you've got a brother who is struggling in an area of sin and he's going to bust the gates of hell wide open because you don't love him enough to address it. And so that's ultimately what Paul is talking about as he addresses this in chapter 5. And now as we make our way to chapter 6, we're going to see six sets of do you not know questions. Now, this is what we would call a sanctified sarcasm by the Apostle Paul. Because what did I just share with you? They loved wisdom. They prided themselves on knowledge. And Paul, six times in this chapter, is going to go, did you not know, you people who are so wise that want to puff yourselves up? And as we do this, and really this series of these next several chapters, what I love about this is that we are reading through this letter as if the First Corinthian church would have read through it, you see. And so as we study through the Scripture and we look at this, they would have received this letter from Paul, they would have probably read it in totality, and then they would have had to go back through it and talk about these things, bring these things up, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, if you will. There wasn't chapter and verse for them in that day, and yet issue by issue, they would have had to work through these things. So as we at times are uncomfortable, it's not a bad thing. We're addressing things, we're talking through things, we're bringing things to light in areas of Scripture that typically uh, most pastors probably would have rather skipped. So all that to say, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says in verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous? and not before the saints. Do you not know? So here's the first do you not know statement. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest of matters? Verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? In verse 4, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? And so as they have struggled now with uh, finding the line morally, they're also struggling internally with arguments inside the church. And as they're arguing with one another, they're now beginning to sue one another. They're going to court and suing one another in front of Gentiles that don't believe in Jesus. And so what Paul says to them is, do you not know that you were called to be judges on this earth as saints? And so you can't even settle one of your own small matters, but you are called to be judges. Now, Paul says this two different times, do you not know? And yet some of these topics he's discussing, do you not know you're to judge angels and to judge the world? We look at that and go, wow, that seems to be pretty big and broad. I, I'm not sure I knew that. But Paul is saying this, why? Because he's taught them already. He spent 18 months teaching them, walking through Scripture with them. Now, in terms of what we're talking about and judging the world and judging angels, what John would write in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 is this, Blessed is he who is, uh, blessed and holy is he 
who has the has has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And so what we see is this call that we have to actually be judges as believers. Now, for many of you, I don't know that we've gone through our eschatological beliefs. That just means our study of the end times. But I'll tell you where we land, at least where I land. You all uh, can disagree if you like, uh, but I'm going to at least explain to you my spot. It is, and it is this, that we as a group of believers, if Jesus were to come back, that we would be raptured. We would be taken uh, off the scene prior to the seven years of tribulation that Daniel chapter 9 specifically talks about and that John gives in detail in Revelation. Now there are some that believe that uh, we'll have to go halfway through the tribulation period, but uh, to me in scripture it's pretty clear that we were not appointed to wrath. And as I look at those seven years, it looks pretty bad. It looks a lot like wrath to me. And so we will be pulled out of 1 Thessalonians addresses. We'll be raptured up with Jesus and brought together with all those who have gone before us that believe in him as well. And we together become the bride of Christ to spend a seven-year period in the heavenlies uh, getting to know our groom, our Lord Jesus, at the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's going to be this beautiful time to, to celebrate and be there with him. Uh, Meanwhile, on the earth, all hell is breaking loose. And at the same time, many people are actually coming to know the Lord, but they're quickly executed and brought again up into uh, the heavenly scene. And so as the heavenly scene comes to an end, Jesus now comes back triumphantly at the end of that seven-year period. He wipes out the Antichrist. And what Jude says is as he comes back, behold, he comes with 10,000s of his saints. Who's that? That's us. We get to come back triumphantly as his bride there together with the groom were presented and Jesus proceeds to whoop some hiney. It's going to be pretty awesome. We're going to be able to be there to witness that. But then what he does is he establishes his kingdom, his kingdom on earth. And for a thousand years, he has what is known as the millennial reign, where he rules in peace and in righteousness and in truth. And all the promises that are there in the Old Testament that were meant for Israel, all the things God said that were going to happen that have yet to be fulfilled, he will take care of all those at his second coming. And who will be there along with him is us to rule and to reign to be judges here on the earth in our glorified state. No more sin in this guy. And so we're able to be there alongside Jesus. But then at the end of the thousand years, there will be people who have lived through the tribulation who are now living in this thousand year period. And they, like us, still have to make a choice. Will I believe in Jesus or not? Now keep in mind, they're making this decision while he rules and reigns in peace and in righteousness. But for one final time, he's going to allow Satan to come up out of the pit and give everybody who is still left a decision to make. And over that, we will get the opportunity to be judges. He will also then bring all those fallen angels who chose to turn away from Jesus. And over that, we will get to be judges. And so we get to be there along with him. And this is what Paul is trying to explain to them, of which I took about uh, two minutes to explain to you, which is a lot. And so if you want to take a little more time to dig into this for yourself or to pull this slide up where you can actually see it and blow it up on the interwebs, or if you want me to email it to you, I'm happy to do that too. But all this to say we are called to be judges. 
And what Paul is driving at is if you're called to be judges, why do you then turn to Gentiles to judge you? He continues here to address the issue in verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to, the, goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Verse 7, Now therefore, it is an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Verse 8, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. And so professing to be wise, these guys were actually foolish. They couldn't even settle the most basic of arguments amongst themselves. They had to take it before the Gentile court and allow people that didn't know Jesus to make a judgment, a determination over them. And Paul doesn't mince any words. He says, look, this is an utter failure. You guys have completely failed in this area. And here, what he says in verse 7 is probably uh, the least highlighted verse in your entire Bible. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Boy, that's one we like to skip, right? Why do you not just let yourself be cheated? And as we think about this, it goes completely against everything in our flesh, right? Everything in our culture is, uh, we should be win, we should be justified, things should be made right, and yet here in Scripture, Paul makes it very clear it would be better off for us to let ourselves be cheated. And so the question comes up is, well, is Jesus suggesting we should just be a bunch of a doormats? Let people walk all over us? We can't allow that. Matthew chapter 5. Let's go to what Jesus said. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, we like that part. You take an eye, I'm probably going to take both of your eyes. We like that. Verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. In other words, uh, give him all your clothing off your back. Verse 41, and whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Verse 42, give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And so the question is, does Jesus want us to be a doormat and allow ourselves to be taken advantage of? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what Jesus was suggesting. Now, uh, when I was in high school, uh, I, my sport that I loved was football. I, whatever I could do to be ready for football, to, I, I just loved the idea of going out and hitting somebody. It was appealing to my flesh. And so uh, you could do it legally in this spot. And so I could go out and hit people. But as I became a junior, our coach decided to tell us that we all needed to go out for a spring sport. Now, I never played much baseball as a kid, and so I, I didn't go out for spring baseball, and I didn't particularly like to run, so I wasn't going out for track. And the only sport that was left for me to go out for was tennis. And so you can imagine a linebacker on a football team now is on the tennis squad. And I quickly became part of what is probably, arguably, um, the worst tennis squad in the history of the IHSA. We were absolutely uh, atrocious. 
We only won uh, one match against Paris in two years, and the only match they won was against us in two years. So together, we were both equally terrible squads going up against each other. But for me, uh, because I was uh, there as a part of this team, having never played tennis before, uh, on this team that was also awful, I should have been a five or a six player, uh, or not even on varsity. Instead, I was the number two player on our team, which sounds like a great compliment. Except that means every match you have to go up against the other team's number two player. Which meant that I was in for seasons of complete uh, hiney whoopings from the other team. Now one particular match that I remember is we found ourselves against the dreaded uh, wooden shoes of Tetopolis. And as we're going up against uh, the wooden shoes, there was my opponent. He was a, a little guy, a freshman or sophomore, maybe 100 pounds dripping wet. And I was a 180-pound uh, linebacker for my high school team. So outmatched in terms of the tail of the tape. But when the match started, I mean, it was ridiculous. He was all over the place with the ball. It was awful. And, and as we're going along and playing uh, point after point, I had a shot down the line. And something you have to understand about high school tennis is it's not like the picture on the screen. There are no line judges that call the shots in or out. You call the shots on your own side, what is inbounds and what is out of bounds. And so as I finally had a decent shot on this guy and the ball lands just inside the line over there, he says, out. I'm like, what? So I give him the look, you know, the look. I'm like, yeah, I don't appreciate that. And then we begin to play again, and we come to another fairly good back and forth point, and I have another shot down the line. Boom, right on the inside, and he says, out. And it was at this point in time that I explained to this young man very calmly exactly which of his orifices I was going to place my tennis racket if he called another one of my shots out again. Now, you can imagine how his father reacted who was watching the game. And he stood up and began to yell at me out on the tennis court for threatening his son. To which uh, my father began to explain to this young man's father exactly what he was going to do to him after his son was done uh, waylaying his boy. That was when the match ended that day. <laughs> they, they gave game, set, match. It was all over. But the root issue was I did not. Uh, appreciate being cheated. I did not, uh, was not thankful that he was cheating me. Why? Because we don't stand for that. We don't tolerate being cheated by people. And yet what Jesus did in John chapter 13 is he, he washed feet. The God of the universe was willing to get down on his knees, take, out his, take off his outer robe and dry and wash people's feet, including a guy named Judas who in just a few hours was going to betray him and allow him to go to the cross. And Jesus knew it. He knew he was going to be cheated. And so this is the issue at hand. Now fast forward years later and we got the opportunity to go down to Farmington, Missouri. I've shared with many of you my testimony. But as we made our way to Farmington, the first people that I went into business with um, they were less than stellar business partners. And in just a few days, I realized that um, they didn't actually have money, which is kind of important when you run a business. And so we were in the middle of this back and forth, looking like things were going to end up in court because, from my standpoint, they have cheated me. They have 
wronged me. There's thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on the line, not to mention I left my job and moved my family. And so there's a, a tremendous amount of emotion now at this point. What's also taking place is after years of uh, walking away from Jesus and not going to church, we are finally, for the first time, uh, going back to a church in this little country church with a guy he reads out of the Bible. Pretty amazing that God would speak to me through that. And this particular Sunday, uh, Pastor Mike was in Psalm 94. He was making his way through all 150 Psalms, and we arrived there, and this was in November. And things were heating up uh, in terms of me dissolving this business and uh, what exactly to do. And here's what uh, Pastor Mike read, Psalm 94, verse 16. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would soon have settled in silence. And if I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. And in the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comfort, your comforts delight my soul. And what Mike said that day, not even knowing anything about my situation, he hadn't even met me yet. He said, sometimes God uses ungodly people to discipline his children. And the Lord spoke to me and said, this is my discipline. I want you to go home. And I want you to sign those papers in your email. Now, this is God speaking inside my head. I'm like, I never heard that the voice of the Lord, but I knew to go home and sign the papers in my email because what it had to do with was do I trust him? Do I trust him enough to uphold me? Do I trust him enough to take care of me? Do I trust him enough to walk away where financially I've got rights here? And we get so excited and upset about our rights, but as the old Irish pastor used to say, it rights, dear brethren. The only rights you have are to hell and death. The only, the only rights I actually had were to, to hell and death. And, and any amount of money that I had, it was all his. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the earth and its fullness is all his. And so the reality was, it was all about me. My flesh wanting to defend myself. And often this is where we get to in our Christian walk. Where we've got this very... Me-centric. What does this have to do with me? How do I benefit? And, and i got to tell you, the truth about our walk is, it's not about us at all. It's actually about others. It's about putting ourself aside and taking care of other people to turn the other cheek. And so as my flesh demands justice, what the Spirit actually says is, this isn't about you whatsoever. Now, let's continue. In verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. In such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And so as they appeared before court in front of all these people who were not going to obtain the kingdom of God, what Paul is saying is be careful where you seek approval. I mean, for us, we have to be careful. Who are we seeking approval from? Solomon says in Proverbs 29 that the approval of man is a snare. It's a trap. 
And so they were seeking to have approval or judgment from those who should not have been judging. And as Paul lays out this list here for us in verse 9 and 10, I want to be careful to point out that this is not an all-inclusive list of those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. But what he is trying to point out is it's in the present tense. It's those who are currently, uh, presently practicing in these things, not those who are struggling in these things. Please understand there's a difference between practicing and openly accepting it and a difference between struggling in the midst of it. Because where there's struggle, there's life. Everyone in this room is struggling with something. It might be on this list. It might not be on this list. But we are all struggling and battling through something. But here's the reality. You know who doesn't struggle? A dead man. Go to the mortuary. Open it up. You're not going to see any signs of struggle whatsoever. And so as we struggle and as we claw and as we try to work our way back out of the pit, it's by His grace, not by our works that we're made whole. And yet what Jesus is all about is meeting us in the midst of our struggle, coming alongside us. Now for years and years, um, what I heard was, um, you were just born this way. It was a whole movement about people proclaiming that they were just uh, born this way. And from the, the tribe that I was a part of as a kid is that the answer would generally be given, you weren't born that way, that was a choice you made. And, and we would address people like that. And what I have come to study and what I have come to listen to and learn is that um, for the most part, we were born this way. And by that I mean we were born sinners. We were born with a sin nature. Each of us with a different propensity, a different tendency to be one way or the other way. That our nature isn't the issue. The nature is what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3. Ye must be born again. Because we have a nature problem. Naturally, we were born disconnected from God and dead. And so if we're just going to say, I'm born this way and this is the way it always has to be, then we're denying the new nature He desires to give to us. As Paul writes this, he says, and such were some of you. I want to point out the past tense nature of what Paul is saying. Is it such were some of you. And so as we go through this list, and as we check a box, or we don't check a box, such were some of you. I have heard this said as well by people that have been addicts, that I will always be an addict. That I will always be you fill in the blank. And I'm here to tell you, I think there has never been a bigger load of crap sold to people. Pardon me for being crass. Because how big is our God? How big is our God that we have to always be the way of our old, retired, dead flesh? We don't have to be stuck in these old lives. What Paul says here is, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. To be justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And so the promise, the power of God is to actually cleanse us from the inside out. To take these tendencies, these propensities of the old man. And wash them away. And to believe that that's not possible. That's to serve a God that is way too small for me. I'm not going to serve that God. I'm going to serve a God that is big enough to cleanse me from the inside out. And so I want to encourage you today. 
You do not have to live in that spot. If you're praying for somebody, keep praying for them. Because our Jesus is more than big enough to cure that thing. And downstairs right now, there's a lady who for years thought there was no hope. For years, thought that there was no way her husband could ever be fixed. And I'm here to tell you, by the power of Jesus, who can cleanse from the inside out, I've seen impossible. I'm living impossible. And so if you're in a spot, keep praying. Keep pressing into that thing. Because he sanctifies and he cleanses. And what the Apostle Paul will write to them in 2 Corinthians is, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so I refuse to be labeled by any of these titles that used to be the old man. And I can check several of those boxes. I'm not going to be labeled like that because I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And one of the phrases I love is that I, I am not someday what I will be, but I'm not what I once was. Someday I'm going to be perfect. I mean, I'm going to be, you guys ought to see me. I'm going to be awesome. I'm going to be flaunting it like, yeah. But I, I'm not there yet. But I'm sure not what I once was. That's the power of the cross. And so as Paul has addressed this, he continues in verse 12. And he says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And so Paul isn't calling them into this boring, legalistic life where they can never have fun again. What he's saying is, all of these things are lawful for me. I am free to experience everything. But here's the caveat. Not all of it's helpful. Not all of it is actually freeing. In fact, most of the things, all of the things that are on this list actually provide captivity, not freedom. That's the reality. And so what Paul is encouraging them to do is to be free, to be unchained, to be unhindered. And that's what it looks like to live the abundant Christian life. And I have to ask myself as these things come along for me to experience is does this chain me or does this free me? So I'll leave that hang out there for a minute. Paul says in verse 13, foods for the stomach and, and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so in this Greek culture, they apparently this was one of their sayings that um, foods for the stomach and the stomach for food. And so they had this saying because in their society, it was believed that there was no such thing as the resurrection. That there was not going to be any bodily resurrection. What that means, as they translate that, is that it doesn't matter what I do in these bodies. And so they could live a life like, hey, let it rip, tater chip. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Our spirit's going to go on, but these lives, this body, what difference does it make? And so it allowed them to live very carnally as a result. But what Paul's addressing here is that the body does matter. What happens and our body does matter. And as we commit sexual immorality, what literally takes place is we give a piece of ourselves to the other person. And so as, as we think about our, our high school days, you girls are more proper than the boys for sure. But in the locker room, how many times I, I heard guys say, I'm going to get a piece. And they would say it with such crassness, but they didn't realize just how true it actually was. 
that there was a peace of them that went away and a peace that they received from someone else. And so this is the warning that Paul is trying to give them. He continues and he says, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Verse 17, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And so what Paul is saying is that as we become new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, but as He comes to dwell in you, it means you take Him with you in every single situation you now go in. And so His example here was intended to get their attention. He's saying if you go into a prostitute, you're now taking Jesus with you to the prostitute. And no doubt they would have went, whoa, that sounds serious. And He intends for it to be serious. But what He is getting at is that anything I intake through my eyes, through my ears, experientially through my flesh, whatever it is that I experience because he is in me, I am now bringing him into that situation, you see. And so it's a very dangerous spot for us to be in. It's one that the Lord will not stand for. We continue in verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And so what we see is that while uh, all sins are equal in the sense that the wages of sin is death, that all consequences are not equal as we experience these sins. And what I mean by that very simply is um, if I'm angry with you and it's not righteous anger, I'm just mad, you tick me off, you cut me off out here getting on to 18th Street, and, and I'm angry, that is a sin. The wages of sin is death. But if I decide to go ahead and murder you because I'm so angry that you cut me off on 18th Street, there are far different consequences to that same uh, sinful behavior. And so what Paul is saying is when it comes to the sexual sins, these of sexual immorality, remember that covers the whole gamut of all things sexual in nature, that there is a different set of consequences. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32 Solomon says, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. And so contrary to what their Greek culture said, that whatever you do in the body doesn't matter, what Paul is saying is, and it's echoed here by Solomon, is that what we do in these bodies does matter. And as we link ourselves in, it actually takes a piece of our soul away in the process. Now we were created three in one, image of God. We are body, that's our soma that carries us around. We are uh, our psyche that we interact with, that's our soul. This is what makes me, me, right? But then lastly, we are spirit. And this is the part of us that as our nature exists is dead. And to think about as we're born, all of us, even the little babies, they're all born these little sin buckets, right? Like Moms are going to be mad at me. But they are. like They're all just ready to pop out and sin. They can't wait. And so as we're born with this nature, we, we realize that there's a disconnection there. We realize that something is wrong. What Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 is that there's uh, eternity has been placed in the heart of man. 
There's this idea that something bigger, something better is out there for me. But what happens is we try to fill it with all kinds of things. We try to fill it with uh, food and drink and relationships. We try to fill it with the approval of man. And so we try our best to fill it with all these things, but it never uh, stacks up. It always leaves us wanting more and more and more. And what Paul is communicating here is that in the nature of this sexual sin is that as we give ourselves away and we give ourselves away and we give ourselves away that eventually there's nothing left. That we're left completely void. And as I look online at that jgtc.com that has pictures of people with their mugshots, I can't help that time and time again I look and I see blankness. It breaks my heart. Because I look and I'm like, there's, there's nothing there. They've given themselves away so much that they are void and they are empty. And so this is what Paul is warning about. Now he continues in verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so what he says is your body is actually the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, this word temple in the Greek is the word uh, naos. Now, for many of you, you have never considered the temple and the temple mount and the grounds. But just to give you a little layout, uh, when they would say temple, it meant this whole huge area. It's like 40 acres on the top of the temple mount. And on the outside, it's the court of the Gentiles or anybody can come in. And then as you get a little closer, it's the court of the Jews or you have to be Jewish. And then eventually, as you get all the way into that temple proper, you could only be a priest, a descendant of a son of Aaron to get inside the actual temple building. But even inside of that, there's this one room called the Holy of Holies, separated by a, a veil. And only one guy, one time a year, the high priest could go in there to offer a sacrifice. It was because this was the residence of the very uh, presence of God. His Shekinah glory existed inside the Holy of Holies. And in the Greek, that place is called the Naos. It's the spot, the Holy of Holies. It's where the presence of God dwelt. And so as Paul is communicating to them that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, he's saying you're the Naos, that his presence actually dwells in you. And as you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He comes in to reside in you. And this is tremendous. I mean, this is a mystery. Paul says in Colossians 1.27 that this is a mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like, wow, that the God of the universe would dwell in you. That's amazing. But as He dwells in you, this free gift that we can receive, please understand that it cost Jesus His life. <laughs> so you were, you were bought at price. Do not cheapen the gift of salvation. He bought you. You are valuable enough for Him to give His life for you. It was not free for Him. We can come freely, but it was not free. And so we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what we know about the temple is the enemy always wants to destroy the temple. As you go through the Old Testament books of history and Solomon builds this great temple, uh, Satan is constantly wanting to destroy the temple. Finally, at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, 586 B.C., the temple is destroyed. 
And then later on with Zerubbabel and uh, Ezra, the temple is rebuilt years later. And then finally, Herod the Great, he makes it look magnificent until uh, 70 AD. General Titus and the Roman army once again completely obliterate the temple. And that's where it stands to this very day. It's been wiped out. All that comparison to say, you're the temple. (laughs) Satan wants to destroy you. He is looking for any way to get himself in there to destroy us because we are the residents of the Holy Spirit. And what 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 does is it gives us his playbook. Here's what he's going to use to try to destroy you. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. There's Satan's place. Only three of them. He runs them well. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And so he attacks over and over and over again. And in this area, what Paul is saying is, as he's going to try to attack you in the sexual realm, he is going to try to attack you with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh is not to fight, but to flee. He is saying, I want you to understand, get out. In the words of the great actor, Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, get out, get out, like get run for the hills, get out of there because we are not capable of fighting that battle, right? For you men, I'll just speak to you for a second. Um, Ladies, this is a little bit of insight. Here's what it takes for a man to be interested in a woman um, that you show him any interest. That's pretty much it. But some of you are going to act like that's not the case. But that's, that's how deep of a thinker we actually are. And so what the enemy wants to do is trip us up any way possible. Because that's, that's all the more we consider. And so to get out, to run, to flee from that, what Paul is going to go on to say in uh, chapter 10, verse 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He always gives us an out. He gives us a path to be able to run away. Now, one of the most popular stories in all the Old Testament about this is the story of Joseph. Genesis chapter 39. Now, previously in Genesis, we saw Joseph as a 17-year-old boy he is uh, despised by his brothers because he's the favorite son. And so as he comes up to his brothers with this beautiful coat that his daddy made him, and he tells them about his dreams that he had about all of them bowing down to worship him, you can imagine older brothers liking this dream about, hey, I'm gonna, you're going to bow down and worship me. Isn't that a great dream? And they said, no, uh, we actually hate you. And so they sold him and made it look like he had died. They sold him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And so at the age of 17, he finds himself there in Egypt, away from his family, and in the house of a guy named Potiphar. Now, Potiphar was a high-ranking Egyptian official, and as the hand of the Lord was upon Joseph, he quickly rose up to a, a place of some prestige inside Potiphar's house. He was in charge of the whole household. And so he had a pretty good gig going on. But he also had drawn the eye of Mrs. Potiphar. I mean, she liked her some Joseph. And so she was not bashful about making advances at this young man. And she made a pass at him and another pass. And every time he's able to resist until finally one day she catches Joseph 
alone, just the two of them together, and she lays it on hot and heavy. To which Joseph, as what Paul has suggested here, he has to flee. He has to take off and run. And as he runs away, she grabs a hold of his clothes. He takes off running out of there naked, out of the house, just to get away from this situation. Joseph fleed instead of participating in this sexual immorality. And as I share that, I want to remind you about the next chapter in the life of Joseph. He ends up being wrongfully accused, and he gets sent to jail for two years for a crime he didn't commit. It would have been easier if he would have just gone ahead and slept with her, right? He could have avoided a jail term, satisfied the flesh a little bit, But as we make the decision to do the right thing, it is never, almost ever, the easiest path. It is almost always more difficult. And so as Joseph makes this decision and he finds himself there in prison, it's here that he ends up meeting a couple guys that work for the king. He shares with them some details about a dream they've had and eventually gets the chance to appear before Pharaoh himself and talk about a dream that Pharaoh had. And you guys know that that day he was freed from prison, made the number two in all the land of Egypt, and sure enough, here comes his family back around, and they bow at his feet, just as his dream had indicated, and he's able to actually save his family. But it all started because he fled from sexual immorality, because he was willing to take the difficult decision to put an end to things, to stop it right then and there before it started. It completely changed the trajectory of his family. And I'm sharing that because I know that in this room, there are generations that have been plagued by sexual immorality, by struggles. We might not want to talk about it. It might make us get a little, you know, our skins crawl a little bit. But there have been generations plagued by these kind of things. And you have a decision by the power of Jesus to draw a line in the sand and say, this might be hard, but no more. I'm not going to allow my family to be subjected to this because we never sin unto ourselves. There's always, there's always someone else that's affected. It always affects more people. And so to change the trajectory of a family is a powerful thing. It's a thing that can go on for generations. That's the kind of inheritance you want to leave your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. That today this thing stopped. So as we close, what Paul says to Timothy, his young protege, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, is this. He says, flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What Paul says is, I want you to flee these things that will trip you up. And instead, pursue, this sounds like a worthy inheritance, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, and those who call on the name of the Lord out of a pure heart. Pursue these things and then surround yourself with people who are also pursuing these things. Where can we have strength? It's not out there trying to fight the battle on our own. We're not built strong enough to be able to fight this, but together... In a community of people, we can come alongside one another. We're also trying to pursue righteousness and faith and love, and we're working together at this thing as we struggle and we muddle our way along. Surround yourself with those people who are willing to come alongside you 
not to judge you, but to see you restored, to see you brought back. And so I'm going to pray for us. Father God, I just thank you so much. That chapter was a doozy, Lord. <laughs> but I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises that we don't have to be trapped in these old lives. That the old man can pass away and the new can be brought up in his stead. Lord, I pray for everybody in this room and the ones watching online and the ones that will watch this and listen to this later and in years to come that they would know they don't have to be trapped. They don't have to be labeled. They don't have to rely on this sin nature that we have and say it's just always going to be this way. It's not always going to be this way by your power and by your blood. And so, Father, I, I lift this message up. I lift this group up. I lift this community up to you, Lord. Help us pursue righteousness, peace, and faith and love and surround ourselves with others who are doing the same. Lift all this up in Jesus' name.